the violence of Joseph's brothers in the book of Genesis for cussed so loudly that their shockwaves resonate into future prophecy. And as we study Genesis today, we will see them pass through us unto their reckoning in the book of Revelation. The book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, foreshadowing what happens in Revelation, the last book of the Bible. The word of God is perfect. Let's open to Genesis chapter 41. Our small group curriculum covers passages from earlier in chapter 41. And this sermon will overlap those passages by a few verses and take us into chapter 42. So 41 verse 37. We're following the story of Joseph who has been placed in power in Egypt alongside Pharaoh. And through Joseph's spirit-given interpretive ability to know exactly what was intended by Pharaoh's dream, the land of Egypt is able to provide for the surrounding countries amidst a famine. This is also where the first historical record is given of 20% or one-fifth of what is taken up being collected. So this is where the income tax was invented. Sorry about that. (laughs) Genesis 41 37. This famine is so widespread that it has affected Joseph's family back in the land of Canaan. And Jacob, Joseph's father, sends 10 of Joseph's brothers to Egypt, not realizing that he's sending them to their own brother, whom they formerly sold into slavery. This covers a lot of ground. We've covered a lot of ground both biblically, but we also have covered a lot of literal physical ground. It's easy to lose track of where we're at geographically as we work our way through Genesis. So take a look at this. Here is a map of the Holy Land, just to show you where the events of these chapters of Genesis have taken place. We're looking at the Mediterranean Sea, and on this shore, the land of Israel, the southern shore here is the land of Egypt. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was with his father in Hebron, moved north to Shechem, There, he met a man who said his brothers weren't there. They had moved farther north. And this is Dothan. This is where Joseph found his brothers. This is where Joseph's brothers sold him in to slavery. They see the Ishmaelites passing by. And they, ironically, sell their brother to people who are their kin, saying we ought not do this to our own kin. And as a result, they actually end up selling their brother, to their distant cousins. Now, this train took Joseph south down to Egypt, which means that it passed not only through Shechem, but it also means that Joseph passed near Jacob on his way south. This is roughly 550 miles from Dothan, where he was captured. And then I believe the events of chapter 41 take place here. This is where the Sphinx is found. This is where the pyramids are found. This is where I believe ancient Egypt was run. i give you the modern day city of Memphis. So when Jacob dispatches his 10 sons to Egypt, that's roughly the route that they took. That was roughly their journey to arrive at Memphis. That also gives you a scale on just how widespread this famine is. The text of Genesis is clear. It even describes global implications to this famine. This is Genesis 41, 
starting in verse 37. If you use the Bibles that are in the seats with you, it's page 35. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over the land of all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath-Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities." He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called, them, uh, called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was a famine in all lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Joseph did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. 
We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Look at Joseph now. Look at Joseph now and consider where he has been. Just a couple chapters ago, he was wrongfully imprisoned. He was serving diligently as a prisoner. And now look at him. He is in the second limousine in the royal motorcade. And everybody has to bow the knee when he walks up. And he wears a signet ring given to him by Pharaoh and wears this gold chain and this ornate robe. And in all of it, no matter the circumstance, Joseph has been faithful to God and God has been faithful to Joseph, regardless of circumstance. In chapter 40, Joseph was in the pit, in the dungeon, an innocent man wrongfully accused. And what did he do in chapter 40? He diligently served and took care of the people who were around him. Now in chapter 42, he is adorned in the finest regalia on earth. And what does he do? He's faithful to the Lord and he takes care of those who are around him. Which chapter are you in right now? You in chapter 42, do not forget to praise the Lord because he's worthy of worship. Are you in chapter 40? Do not forget to praise the Lord because he's worthy of worship. When we lived in Orlando and my, my family was in the hospital, my wife was there with various medical issues surrounding the pregnancy of the twins. Little baby Asher was in the NICU. Baby Aiden was in the NICU having surgery roughly every four days of his life. We lived in this apartment that was on the west side of town in Lake Buena Vista, right next to Disney World. And then Florida Hospital South was in downtown Orlando. And Interstate 4 connected the two. And if traffic was bad enough, you would sit there for an hour to an hour and a half, even though it was only about a 20-mile stretch. When we would get the call at three in the morning that Aiden was having surgery, that he was crashing, and this could be it, we had our routine down. We put Austin in his car seat, had a duffel bag by the door at all times. We'd get up, we'd go, get in the expedition, we'd hit play, we'd listen to worship music, and we would worship our guts out, singing at the top of our lungs, driving east on Interstate 4. Why? Because God's worthy. He's worthy of worship. And then we would go to the stupid waiting room and pace around, and then the surgeons would come out and say, he, he made it, he's alive. It's a miracle. Once again, he made it through. And then we would hug the surgeons, kiss our baby boy. Then I would somehow try to go back and go back to work and get back to some sort of semblance of normalcy. We'd get back in the car, drive westbound on I-4, hit play again, and worship with just the same spirit, just the same truth, just as much gusto, just as much passion. Why? Because he's worthy of worship. Whether eastbound or westbound, God is worthy. Whether chapter 40 or chapter 42, he's worthy. Whether you're in the pit or you're on the mountaintop, he is worthy of worship. And if you're in the pit, don't tell me that you'll wait until you're exalted to begin to worship God, because you won't. You worship him while you're in the pit because he's worthy of worship. If you're on the mountaintop right now, you praise God. Why? Because he's just as worthy of worship. 
Let's go back through this text and focus on the truth that's here. I'm, I'm fascinated with this relationship between Pharaoh and Joseph. It's so interesting to me. Pharaoh has this intense respect and esteem for Joseph. And he exalts him to this high position. Look at the very second verse that we read. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Pharaoh was a worshiper of Ra, Horus, the Egyptian sun god, along with a whole host of other gods in the Egyptian pantheon. So in a way, it makes sense that Pharaoh would be willing to accept the fact that Joseph worships some god with whom he's not acquainted, because as, as a polytheist, he would say, okay, yeah, I'll just add, take your god and add him to our collection of gods. God does not play well with other gods. <laughs> when you try to add the one true God to a pantheon of false gods, it does not work out well for the false gods. Just ask Dagon. In the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, you see the story of the Philistines. The Philistines see the fact that the nation of Israel is like invincible and everything they do succeeds as long as they have that magic box with them. And so in their reasoning, they look at the Ark of the Covenant and they mistake it for a magic box. They don't realize that this is just the favor of God upon his chosen nation of Israel. It's just the sovereign will of God being realized. They just think, oh, it's a magic box. If we steal that box, we'll be invincible too. It does not work out like that at all. So they take the Ark of the Covenant, the direct presence of God on the earth, and they stow it in a temple to Dagon this demon god that they worship. And they come in the next day and the statue of Dagon has fallen down. And this is genuinely funny to me. They prop Dagon back up again. <laughs> oh, oops, silly Dagon. <laughs> it doesn't click. I mean, somebody sort of said something. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Statues don't just fall on their own. Okay, it took like 20 of us to get that statue down in that country over there. Maybe, maybe this isn't just a magic box. Maybe this is the one true God and Dagon is bowing before him. Maybe as we look at Dagon bowing before the Ark of the Covenant, we're seeing a realization of what scripture prophesies that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess above the earth and on the earth and under the earth that he is the one true God and above him there is no other. Now nah, let's just prop him back up. It's ridiculous, but do you do the same thing? Do you do the same thing? They come back the next day and Dagon has fallen and is demolished. The statue is destroyed. You can't take God and add him into the other gods that are in your life. It's not gonna work out well for you. It's not gonna work out well for the other gods in your life. God does not share his glory. He is the one true God and above him there is no other. Do you see in this relationship between Pharaoh and Joseph, the precursor and the background to the 10 commandments? Do you see here the background to the book of Exodus? God is going to systematically, a plague at a time, make an utter mockery of every Egyptian god. But Pharaoh believes it's Joseph who worships some foreign god I've never heard of is useful to me. God's not a useful tool to you. You can't just take what's beneficial about Christianity and add it to your collection of gods and add Christianity right there alongside the other gods in your life 
money, wealth, mammon, self-worship, sex, addiction, success, acceptance, social success. You, you can't just add God to your collection. It's not going to work out well for the pagan idols in your life. He is Lord. And you bow your whole life to him. You sacrifice everything and you demolish the pagan idols there in your life. Pharaoh didn't know what he was messing with. He saw Joseph as a useful tool to him. Secularists today do something similar in fascinating fashion. Watch the three pillars that hold up a culture, politics, economics, and morality, interplay one with the others. And when one of them falls, the other two crumble. And a society that has lost its moral compass and divorced itself from Judeo-Christian values, people then ascribe their moral fundamentals to economics, to politics. They must find in some other mission their own sense of virtue. Pharaoh saw Joseph as a wise consultant and capitalized on it. Can you be real with, for, for, for a minute, my atheistic friend? Okay, my, my atheistic friend who knows that morality exists, you're not being an honest atheist. When you make moral statements of any kind, you're not being true to atheism. Follow your worldview to its logical end. If you believe that we're just pieces of space dust careening through empty blackness, there's no right and there's no wrong. There's no morality. There's no point to anything. We're all just going to die anyway. Unplug the computer. It shuts off. There's no such thing as right or wrong. You have no basis upon which to condemn murder. You can't even explain where dirt came from, much less make moral statements. But you do make moral statements. You do know that morality exists. Acknowledge the fact. Be honest with yourself. You are borrowing from God when you do that. Anytime an atheist makes a statement that presupposes any sense of meaning whatsoever at all in the universe, makes any kind of moral statement whatsoever at all, they are appropriating Christianity. You are borrowing from a theistic worldview. You're standing upon an abyss, making authoritative statements. Acknowledge this. Be real with yourself. Be honest about it. You know, you know that those basic presuppositions that are built within the very blueprints of your conscience are transcendent in nature, authoritatively true. To the marrow of your bones, you know that murder is wrong. Where does that come from? You make moral statements. You presuppose reason in the universe. And to do that, you must forsake atheism. The only true atheist I've ever known wouldn't bother to show up to a debate because they know that there's no purpose in anything. They are nihilists, meaning nothing has any meaning whatsoever at all. We're all going to be annihilated. Nothing has any kind of point to it at all, least of all trying to proselytize Christians. And so when you make moral statements and you acknowledge the fact that there's meaning in life itself in the universe, you're not standing upon atheism when you do that. You have just borrowed ground from Christianity. Can you be brutally honest and self-aware? You're Pharaoh. You've seen something useful within theism and you've borrowed from it. So to the, to the, the non-Christian boss 
who has a Christian at your employ. And you look at this Christian and you think to yourself, man, I would do well to have an entire roster full of these because this Christian, I mean, they do everything on time. They're, they're honest. For the most part, their personal lives seem to be pretty well handled. I mean, they're financially doing okay, I guess. Like they, they, this Christian who's at my employee just does everything with integrity. Why is that? Why do you suppose that is? Not to burst your bubble, but it's not because they fear you. It's because they fear God. They answer to a transcendent moral authority. In fact, you actually play, you actually play a unique role in their lives. They believe that God has placed you in their path by his sovereign will. You actually represent an authority in their lives, and they, they know that they ultimately won't stand in judgment before you one day. They stand in judgment before God one day. And so their, their ethics are operating on a whole other plane from yours. You are right when you say to yourself, I would do well to have a roster full of these Christians because they answer to a moral authority. Would you see your reflection in Pharaoh? Do you see how Pharaoh has done likewise? He has seen Joseph. He doesn't acknowledge Joseph's God as the one true God, but he acknowledges the benefits of having Joseph at his employ. Now, this peaceable, respectful relationship is not going to last long. It's going to crumble, and the Egyptians who, for these next few chapters, will be charitable towards the Israelites, will one day turn on and enslave them. This is the background to the book of Exodus. But look at how kind the terms were initially. Christian, do you see this likewise? Look at this. I can live my Christian life and be 100% totally at peace with a pagan society, and it's never going to turn on me. After the book of Genesis comes the book of Exodus. So Pharaoh, Pharaoh, it's time to be honest. You've been borrowing from a Christian worldview. You already know that it's true. You already know that God is real. You know that he exists. You know that there's such thing as right and wrong. And you know that you can't account for that within your worldview. Today, would you be honest and behold the beautifully thorough case that the Bible makes for the gospel itself? We are looking at the foundations upon which the New Testament gospel is founded. I was struck by this when I went to Washington, D.C., my friend Charles, with whom I shared the gospel and with whom I'd sparred for 14 years and prayed for, for 14 years that he would give his life to Christ, I went to Washington, D.C. to spend some time with him and to capture his story on video that we could share it. And while we were there, he introduced me to another friend of his. Now, Charles didn't warn me about this, but he brought the two of us together, and then suddenly I found myself in a cage match. And Charles just said, Go! And Charles' friend, it fascinated me how he did everything he could to avoid acknowledging the fact that Charles is a Christian now. And he's like, Charles, I love you. I know that, I, I know that you're, you're a man who just explores things. And when you try stuff out, I mean, like, you really try it out fully. Knowing Charles' background, like, he was a part of the Church of Satan for a while. He was an avid atheist for a long time. And I, you're going through an exploratory phase. You're trying something new. And Charles is like, no, I'm, I'm a Christian. I am, in fact, a baptized Christian. I, I'm a Christian. No, no, Charles, you're not really a Christian. You're going through a phase. Like, he was trying to ascribe a new name to this good transformation that had taken place within Charles' life. Do you see God at work and you're like Pharaoh and you're like, I don't really, I don't really, I'm gonna give it a new name. I'm gonna, Zaphonath Panea. There we go. That, that's your name. Your name's not Joseph. That's way too Yahweh-ish. I'm just gonna call you 
this weird pagan Egyptian Arabic name that means something like the nourisher of the two lands, the living one, or the God who speaks and he lives. I'm going to give you your own, I'm going to ascribe a name to you that I'm comfortable with. But God is at work even in that. Did you see, do you see Joseph's wife? Did you see who Joseph married? Joseph marries a Gentile woman. Look at verse, look at verse 45. He marries Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On. On was also known as the Heliopolis. It was one of the foremost prominent Egyptian cities, and it was like the capital city for the worship of Ra, which means that this woman was the daughter of the priest of the chief city of the worship of the chief god of all of Egypt. This woman marries Joseph. Remember that. Remember that. God is at work. Did you also, did you see in verses 51 and 52 the names of Joseph's sons? Look at them. Manasseh and Ephraim. What does Manasseh mean? According to verse 51, God made me forget all my hardship and my, all my father's house. Manasseh. What about Ephraim? God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So Manasseh in Hebrew means to forget. Ephraim means fruitful. The order in which names appear in scripture is important. It's deliberate. It's there by design. First, we see Manasseh, which means to forget. Joseph must forget what lies behind and press on toward what lies ahead to which Christ has called us heavenward. Look, look at Isaiah 42, verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Forget what lies behind. Press on toward, li- toward what lies ahead. I think, it was, I think it was necessary for Joseph's sanity that he forget all the hardship and affliction that had befallen him. Right, I'm, a, I'm a fan of the Godfather, right? Leave the gun, take the cannolis. Leave the pain, take the wisdom. You understand, Christian? You've been through pain, you've been through difficulty. Okay, take only the wisdom from it. Leave behind the pain. Forget what lies behind and press on toward what lies ahead. Look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has preordained good works for you, opportunities for you to bear fruit right here and now. So forget what lies behind, Manasseh, and bear fruit right where you're at, Ephraim. This is how Joseph's able to function. Forgiveness and fruitfulness. Manasseh, Ephraim. And then verse 55, look at this. This famine covers the whole earth. And people have to come to Egypt. They have to go to Joseph to receive bread that they may live. Do you see the ways in which Joseph is once again a precursor to Jesus? This famine covers the earth in Joseph's day, and people have to go to Joseph to receive bread and live. Jesus comes upon the earth in our era in which sin covers the whole earth. We must go to Jesus, who is the bread of life, that we may live. And just wait. The number of precursors, the number of ways in which Joseph foreshadows Jesus is striking. Look at verse 57. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. This is the reason why. 
This is the reason for all of Joseph's hardship. This is the reason for his affliction. This is the reason for his pain. I don't really struggle with the question, why? Why did my son die? I don't, I don't struggle with that. I share Aiden's story. I proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and I see people saved. I know why. Once I was in Sao Paulo in Brazil, speaking at a conference, telling Aiden's story. And this huge crowd, dozens of people came forward to give their lives to Christ. And I was thinking about my bride who was back home in the US and she didn't see this. And I wanted her heart to have the same kind of healing that my heart had when I saw people give their lives to Christ. And so I told the crowd, please don't be offended. I wanna take my phone out. I wanna show this to my bride. Can I do that for you? And they said, yes. And so as I was taking my phone out to take a, a photo, this kid came sprinting from the sound booth in the back of the arena and ran up to the front and said, she's watching online. And so all those dozens of people came up on stage with me and looked right at the camera and told my bride, we love you. I look at what God has done through my afflictions and my pain and my hardship and I know why. I know why. Do you? Do you? What has God done through your hardship and your affliction? Look at what he's done through Joseph. How many millions of people are impacted by God's redemption and sovereign work through Joseph's hardship? What might God accomplish? Whom might God save because of your affliction, because of your pain, because of your hardship? Your greatest ministry might come through your greatest pain. In chapter 42, we have the big face-to-face moment. I think, that, I think that Jacob's line in verse one is genuinely funny. Everybody's starving to death. And Jacob says, why do you look at one another? Like, I know that the setting was really grim, but when I hear it in my head, it's funny. <laughs> why are you staring at each other? <laughs> like, obviously, we have to go. We have to go to Egypt. And when he sends his 10 sons that way, he doesn't realize he's sending his sons to his son. He's sending them to the one that they sold into slavery. But he doesn't send Benjamin. He doesn't send the baby boy in verse four because he's afraid. Can you imagine? Why in the world is Jacob afraid to send his youngest son? (laughs) It's because of what happened with Joseph. It's because of what happened before. And then verse six, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Does anybody recall a certain vision from a snot-nosed baby brother that he shared with his older brothers, this is the exact fulfillment of that vision. He told them when he was a snot-nosed little kid, you guys are all gonna bow down to me. God showed it to me in a vision. Well, here we are. It's exactly what just took place, exactly what just happened. How is it possible, according to verse eight, that they didn't recognize him? We gotta remember, before they brought Joseph up out of the dungeon, he shaved his face. This automatically made him look different from his brother's. He's wearing the regalia and the chain and the signet ring. He's speaking fluent Egyptian. In the coming chapters, you'll see that the Egyptians didn't know anything about Joseph's Hebrew native language. Apparently, he spoke Egyptian with such fluency, there wasn't even a hint of a Hebrew accent. So they even provide him an interpreter. That's important for understanding what comes next. Joseph's brothers don't realize that Joseph is Joseph. They don't realize that he speaks Hebrew. And then watch as he gives his brother Simeon, some, something like fair treatment, given that Simeon, though he's not the oldest, Reuben was, Simeon was the one who had the idea to sell Joseph, to put Joseph in the pit. I've made a mistake in my past sermons, and I have to apologize for it. I have 
mixed up the names of Jacob and Joseph habitually. I'm so sorry about that. Further compounding the fact is that Jacob's name is changed to Israel and Joseph's name sounds like a little bit like Jesus and his name is even changed to Zaphonath Paneah in this text. And so I have repeatedly stumbled over them and swapped their names on multiple occasions. And most of you guys have just kind of rolled with it, but I know that I've messed up. I know that I've accidentally ascribed to Joseph the lineage that leads to Jesus. I've written, I know that Jesus is the line of Judah. I've written about that in my books, but please forgive me. I have messed up. I have said that Jesus is descended from Joseph. He is descended from Jacob. Jacob. <laughs> so I've messed up. I've made a mistake. I'm sorry. Do you forgive me, Highlands Community Church? They're hearing no in there. No. I demand perfection. You came to the wrong church. So to make it up, to make it up to you, I've provided this chart. All right, look at this. These are the sons of Jacob as they originally appear in birth order in Genesis. Okay, this is how they appear in their birth order. And then we maintain the birth order throughout, although they don't always appear in birth order. So these are the actual sons of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And then in the book of Numbers, we see this roll call where all the descendants are gathered together and the land is allocated. They're getting ready to apportion the pieces of the promised land to each of the descendants. This is why Levi is omitted, because the tribe of Levi was the priestly tribe. They didn't have a particular allocation of land. Rather, their, their job was to oversee the priestly duties. So we have the sons of Jacob, and then we have the allocation of the tribes. And then Revelation 7 is this future prophecy that describes these tribes from the nation of Israel. 12,000 from each tribe is prophesied to be saved in the last days. So they're first named as the sons of Jacob in Genesis, and they come back as these tribes in Revelation 7. You'll notice that Dan is missing. Dan is one of the sons of Jacob, also a tribe of Israel. But then in Judges 18, the tribe of Dan leads like 10 of the other tribes into idolatry. So they lose their inheritance. They're missing from this final roll call of Revelation 7, naming the tribes of Israel from which 12,000 each would be saved. Now, take a look at this list. Take a look at this list. Who's, who's listed there? Look at the bottom. Manasseh. Manasseh is not a son of Jacob. Whose father is Manasseh? Now, whose mother is Manasseh? This woman who is the daughter of the chief priest of Horus. I mean, it does not get any more Gentile than that. Like, Manasseh is more Gentile than a plate of pork ribs. Served at a Greek restaurant on the Sabbath. <laughs> but he's listed here. This is not about ethnicity at all, is it? And it's also certainly not about perfection. I mean, look, there's Simeon. There's Levi. They, they didn't earn their spot here. This is purely about the sovereignty of God at work. We've just, we've met these guys as they're born in Genesis, the sons of Jacob. We see God promise them land here. And then we see what God's going to do in the future through these tribes. Did you know, did you know that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow? He's the God who was, who is, and who is to come. 
And when I look at Revelation 7 and I see these allocations of a promised land to 12 imperfect, deeply flawed tribes whose namesakes were murderous betrayers and backstabbers who sold their own brother into slavery. I see this parade of imperfect people through whom God has promised heaven itself. Can you think of anybody else like that? Anybody else in this room who likewise, though we are backstabbers and sinners and though we betray one another, despite ourselves, God has promised us a piece of the coming promised land. Who are the modern day recipients of this promise? Who are the modern day people who might inherit this promise that was made through Abraham? According to Romans 9, some of them are sitting in this room right now. That we might be the recipients of this promise which spans the scope of the full canon of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. This is how deep the roots of the gospel go. There's more at play here than mere mortal names. You know whose name appears first in the listing of Revelation? In Revelation 7, the fourth born is the one who's listed first, is Judah. Judah is listed first. Why is that? Because it's from the tribe of Judah that Jesus was born. Jesus is the culmination of all of this and the fulfillment of all of this promise yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Joseph, he's a mere foreshadowing of the greater, truer son who is Jesus. The parallels between Joseph and Jesus are striking. Both Joseph and Jesus are dearly loved by the father. Joseph and Jesus shepherd the father's sheep. Joseph and Jesus were stripped of their clothing, hated by their brothers, sent to Egypt, wrongfully condemned, tempted, falsely accused, publicly bound, condemned alongside criminals, beginning their ministries at 30 years of age. Both, after their afflictions, are highly exalted. Both weep for their brothers. Both forgive their brothers. Both save their persecutors from certain death. And what men did to hurt both, God used in both for beautiful, sovereign good. Joseph is just a foreshadowing, a glimpse, and a hint at the greater, truer one who is Jesus, who is alive. And if you will place your faith in him, you step into this rich legacy that is millennia long, that is chapters deep, that spans from Genesis to Revelation, a story that is ongoing, a story that ends with the victory of Jesus over sin, over death, over hell, and over evil itself forevermore. Would you place your faith in Jesus today? I will speak contrary to popular thought, We ought not unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Rather, we ought to see how deep the roots of our New Testament gospel go. They are foreshadowed all the way back in Genesis. And if you place your faith in Jesus today, you'll be saved. So I want to pray. I want to pray. And if God's drawing upon your heart to give your life to Jesus, would you pray with me right now? God, I believe this story is true. I believe that you were at work in Joseph's life, and I believe that Joseph foreshadowed Jesus. I believe that Jesus is your son, God. I believe that Jesus is the way. I believe that Jesus is the truth. I believe that Jesus is the life, and I know there's no way I can come to you, Father, except through Jesus. So right here and now, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved.